Hey everybody, Blair Fraser here, and welcome back to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. This is the technology innovation series where we aim to break down the people and technology fueling industry for Today we're talking about unlocking the value of digital transformation with a unified namespace, or really unlocking the value of your data with a unified namespace. Scaling of industrial IoT solutions require a unified namespace, which acts as a centralized repository for data, information, and context where any application or device can consume or publish data needed for a specific action. Or, simply put, a place where everything is a node within an ecosystem. Or best described in this podcast as what one node knows all nodes know. If a unified namespace is so important, why do most of us not know what the heck it is or even how to achieve it? In this week's episode, we talk about the concept of a unified namespace strategy early in our digital transformation journey to ensure the full potential of your investments in IoT, AI, all those things will get realized, but more importantly, will it be able to scale. I am pleased to welcome David Schultz of G5 Consulting to discuss architecting a digital transformation solution and trying to undercover exactly what is a unified namespace, what is the value, and how we can all get there. I hope you enjoy the show, but before we dig in, here's a quick note from our sponsors. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Doby here, one of your hosts of Maintenance Disrupted. If maintaining heavy equipment in BC and Alberta is part of your job, I'm excited to tell you about the fuel and lubricant supplier, StarWest Petroleum. Having personally worked with StarWest, I can tell you their service is unmatched, and they are committed to saving you both money and downtime. Their service team learns your equipment and suggests ways to extend its life and overall perform better. I was in the throes of starting a new job at a large-scale mine in BC, and we wanted to improve reliability quickly. One of our top issues was hydrocarbon management, and with the support of StarWest team, we were able to reduce our cost and ultimately chart a better path forward for our hydrocarbon management. My bosses were impressed, but I really can't take the credit. StarWest Petroleum did all the legwork. StarWest is a top-tier distributor of Philips 66 lubricants, Kindall Performance Motor Oils, Philips 66 Aviation Lubricants, Redline Synthetic, and Aspen Alkylate Fuel for Professionals. Also available from StarWest is clear and marked gasoline and diesel, heating and furnace oil. But really, it's their customer service that stands out. For more information, go to starwestpetroleum.ca or send me an email and I will get you in contact with the StarWest team. You'll be glad you did, and so will your equipment. Now, here's your episode. All right, David Schultz, welcome to the Maintenance Disrupted Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today, David. Yeah, it's great to be here, Blair. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. And this is this is a very exciting to me because this is a topic, um, admittedly so, I'm, I'm getting up to speed on it. I, I think I have a little bit of knowledge on it, um, but I feel just based on my background and the space I came from, I probably should know a little bit more about this. So I was very happy, David, when you reached out to me, um, just to get some uh, thoughts and ideas about doing this. And I think you were actually going to present it at a conference. And I said, David, we got to get you on this podcast to talk about this. Cause we talked for like, well, I think our skull, our call was scheduled for 30 minutes, but we ended up probably talking a little bit longer just because this is such an interesting topic to me. So thank you again for, for coming on here and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, no, it's, it's really my hobby. Um, I just, it's a challenge within the market of how do we do this thing? That's, you know, let's just call it digital transformation. Um, and it's not uncommon for these conversations to go because all of a sudden we realize, wow, that's really cool. Let's keep going. And, and I'm happy to, to share that, that experience with everybody. Yeah. And I like, you know, I, when I just blatantly asked, like, what do you do? Like, what is your job? And, and, you know, you are in the consulting business, but r- really the way you describe it to me, which I think is perfect is an industry 4.0 solution architect. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. the architect is, is the important part of this because, that's what really industry 4.0 is. It's it's around the architecture to to start to move data, insights, knowledge, and all that kind of stuff uh, around, right? And this is the concept, and this is why we got chatting was this 
concepts or idea around a unified namespace. Yes. Right? And that's really what we want to get into. But before we get into what a unified namespace is, how do we get one, why it's important, maybe just give us a background of what are you seeing in Industry 4.0 to date with people trying to, you know, um, get to Industry 4.0, putting solutions in. What are you seeing? What are some of the challenges that you're coming across? Yeah, so just going back to, uh, you know, the introduction of that Industry 4.0 solution architecture, it's yes, there is a different architecture for what we're trying to do, but there's really a fundamental difference. In, and, and the reason why I say Industry 4.0 is that there's some, what I'm just going to say, bad behaviors that come out of Industry 3.0, the way those solutions were always done. And so typically it's you are a system integrator, you have your preferred solutions, you come in and you solve those problems in a, um, you have a, a contractual relationship that it's these brands are gonna do these waterfall projects and there, there's all these changes and those types of things. Well, for me, I use best in class at every level. So regardless of the solution that I'm actually providing, I start with the technology first and then I'm able to use that best in class. So I don't have any uh, formal relationships. I'm not obligated to use anybody's tool set. Um, I'm also very collaborative in the sense that for, for me and my company, it's I'm able to work with other people that do the same thing that I do. And again, that's something that didn't exist in the past. As far as I'm concerned, there's so much need out there in the market for these digital transformations that you have to be collaborative in that way and able to access um, really it's the best people out there. I mean, that's fundamentally where it starts. Um, and it's, you know, and it's ultimately, again, as we said, it, it's architecting a, a different type of solution. Uh, we've talked about the Purdue model in ISA 95, where, you know, to me, that's the, the leg bones connected to the thigh bone that's connected to the hip bone. Well, this unified namespace is really, everything is a node within an ecosystem. Um, my friend, Dan Reich, and he, he says, it's the rule of the Borg that what one node knows, all nodes know. And I think that's the best way to think about it. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great way of putting it. So for, for our listeners, specifically in the maintenance reliability space, if you haven't come from an automation background or spent time, PLCs, DCS, the SCADA systems, you might not know what this ISA 95 per two model, um, you know, four or five layer kind of architecture, what it is and what it looks like. Cause it, it, it fundamentally was driven out of industry 3.0 to have, you know, a, a, a top letter, top layer ERP, uh, MES, SCADA, you know, and keeping getting down all the way to, you know, the sensor level, which is the bottom, mm -hmm. bottom level of it. So in your words, how would you describe what that ISA 95 per two model is in terms of the typical architecture that most organizations um, have in their facilities today? Yeah, most people realize the ISA 95 through this pyramid, where you're going to have the ERP system at the top, as you mentioned, the MES layer that that uh, you know coming down SCADA, uh, PLC, and then finally having the devices. And so it's these colored pyramids that you'll have a ton of devices, not as much SCADA, not as much MES, and then finally there's generally one ERP system. But ISA 95 is really around where does manufacturing data belong based on its functionality. So if you're doing enterprise resource planning type functions. If it's an enterprise system, you know, that generally you want to have at your ERP level. And then you'll get into these uh, MES, uh, your man, uh, management uh, or manufacturing execution system, or your MOM, manufacturing operations management. And so there, there's certain functions that will exist within that particular layer. And then again, coming down to SCADA. And, and so that's, you know, and, and the HMIs, and then finally PLCs and devices. So it, it's really where do things get categorically assigned? And then how do those systems then interact with each other? And that's what I mentioned, industry 3.0, there's generally, it, it's a one-to-one -one where my PLC talks right to my SCADA, which only talks to the, to the MES. If I want to get a recipe down to my PLC, I have to come to my SCADA system first. And that's that. And that's one of the differences there. Right. So we can picture these, these layers of network layers, right? So mm -hmm. as you said, uh, and I did sing the song when the hip bones connected to the thigh bone in my head when you were saying that. It's just <laughs> that naturally came out. Going to get some crayons out and start drawing within the lines here. But um, mm -hmm. so we picture these these um, these these layers of networks, right? And and what we've done is we've used traditionally what I call 
industry control system type protocols. And we've, we've broken through those layers often, you know, with the rule of not having um, any device connected to, to more than one layer, right? So we can't hop through layers. So we've created this ladder of Swiss cheese to get information from, you know, the bottom level all the way to the, to the top level. And in most cases, we're actually duplicating data. So we're taking data from this level, it goes to the, the, the PLC from the PLC, we're going to copy that data, send it to the, um, the SCADA system, the SCADA to the MES, and then up to ERP. Is that generally true? Yeah, that's very true. And you asked earlier about one of the challenges that people are having, and that's fundamentally it, is that people want to continue to architect their digital transformation solution using these one-to-one -one connections. And so what you'll see, and of course, it's a lot easier to see in a picture, is that you still continue to have your um, you know, ISA 95 technology stack um, that say sits over on, on the left side of this picture. And then on the right side is where you're getting these IIoT platforms and you're getting all these connectors. So you're gonna have the connectors at the device layer going into this IIoT platform. You have these connectors that are coming from your SCADA, from your MES, potentially from your ERP system. Um, oftentimes there's gonna be a, another piece of technology. Um, generally it's a, I'm just gonna call it a process, a story and there's a brand that comes to mind but I don't wanna start mm -hmm. naming names. Yep. Um, that will then try to get all this data put together. And then fundamentally, you get it into your cloud environment where you're going to do some machine learning and some AI. And people are successful doing pilots at that with that architecture because they've gone in, created these one-to-one -one connectors for all of the things that they're working with as part of their pilot. And then they can't scale. It's, even, it's the so-called pilot purgatory. And the reason why it's because the way they've architected it's using industry 3.0 is it's one-to-one -one. and you would need a bazillion engineering hours in order to do that. Um, so for instance, you're trying to connect some tag data and while there's this great tag you know, technology, I've seen two lines running right next to each other that for all intents and purposes use the identical equipment, but somebody different architected it. So your tag data is different and there's no way to even scale to the line right next to you using that architecture. Right, and I love that, David. Is is what you talked about, and that that was my research into this this. Uh, I don't even want to call it a concept or a strategy definition of a unified namespace. Is is in order to scale it, industrial IoT, you need a unified namespace. Right. I think, I think you pointed out that well is we've seen pockets of success. Hey, I was able to connect this to this. And, and I, I'm a big fan. Like I grew up in, in the automation space. So, you know, uh, go back to RS-485, Modbus RTU, then Modbus TCP and, and, you know, um, OPC, right. HDA and DA back to the time. Right. And we've often said OPC stood often stood for, Oh, please communicate. Right. Yes. Um, right. So, so, and then OPC UA came out, which I think is 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 good, but it's still not the point where we need to have a robust, you know, industry 4.0 solution. And really, what the backbone is is this, what's being called a unified namespace. Yeah. So you know, it's interesting you bring up OPC UA because the, the idea behind it, and I. I like the OPC UA standard for what it's doing, which is fundamentally making that connection between your SCADA system and your PLC. It is, it's a verbose protocol that is very, it's bespoke for exactly what it is that, there's do, that it's doing. It's something that I still use in connecting to the, the PLCs um, only because I, th there's really nothing better. And even though there are SCADA platforms that have their own built-in drivers, I will still use a specific, uh, it's a Kepware um, for the OPC UA because it's really just designed to do exactly that functionality. And to me, you really don't want anything, especially at your control layer, um, going wonky because that's when bad things happen. That's right. Yeah, um, yeah. exactly. Yeah, good. So, so oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go ahead, David. I was going to say, so that said, OPC UA does not make for a good protocol for doing this connection because of that uh, verbosity that exists within it. And people are trying to do it, but you need something that really falls into these, you know, these, these four tenants, these four aspects where you have to have something that's an open architecture. It uses a lightweight communication. 
It's report by exception, which is the fundamental difference between OPCUA is that it, that's poll response. You need something reporting by exception and it's all edge driven, meaning that anytime something communicates that's being driven right from the edge and then every event is edge driven. So anytime you get data, it's the, it's the latest and greatest data that you can have. Right, and I think that, um, you know, so I wrote down open architecture, um, report by exception. Um, There's one there I missed. And there was- uh, Lightweight, lightweight, lightweight. Uh, communication. Lightweight, okay. Um, as I said, I, I'm, I'm learning on this call too. So the, the uh, you know, when I, when I look at those and I, when I did the research, that report by exception is, is a pretty big thing. So we're not just duplicating um, data at this point, right? Um, mm -hmm. is, is when something changes, then, then send me the information, right? Otherwise just keep it in your pocket. Yes. Yeah. It's I, the, the analogy I use is that when we were on kids or on road trips as kids, we'd always ask, are we there yet? And we'd ask, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? So that that's that poll response uh, methodology in a report <laughs> by exception. The idea is that dad, 15 minutes or 10 minutes away from guys, we're almost to grandma's put your shoes on that's the only time we needed to do anything. Otherwise our behavior in the back seat didn't change, uh, at least as far yeah. as getting ready to be at grandmother's house. <laughs> that's brilliant way. Cause I, we've all been there and I have young kids too, and they still do it. Yeah. Are we here yeah. like in a three hour ride? Like we're, we're still in our neighborhood kids. Like, <laughs> right. right. Yeah. That's a, a great point there. So, you know, we, we've been talking about this unified namespace and we've kind of been, been skirting around it, but it, it, in your words, what is a unified namespace? So the unified namespace is the, I'm going to call it the repository. It is the, 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 the technology that has all of your data, all of your events, and it provides the structure for how you're going to um, model all of the data that's going to exist within your entire enterprise. And so I want to be clear, it's not a piece of technology that you just go out and buy a unified namespace, although there is software that is designed specifically for creating it, it's really just again, it's it's a it's a the, the single source of truth for all the data for all the for the all the events, and it provides that functionality. And and you can have multiple unified namespaces. So a, a common um, solution or, or architecture will be there's a local UNS, and then they all publish to an enterprise UNS. But how that works is that there's 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 local information that's in a hierarchy that makes sense, and then there's there's the same version that exists at the enterprise. Understood. And then and then in doing so, that's where you utilize those four tenants, where that unified namespace is going to be an open architecture, lightweight, report by exception, edge driven. Understood. So, you know, the first thing when you when you said that is this, you know, a centralized repository of data. I've just been trained in my mind to think, okay, that's a that's a data lake, whether it's in the cloud on premises, I don't care. But that sure that that's a data lake to me. So how does a unified namespace differ from me to saying and and I'll I'll say names and I, I love all these platforms like an Azure or an AWS or even um, you know one of the dominant um, historian players like an OSI Pi or an IP twenty one or something like that. How are is a unified namespace different than a data lake? So, and, and maybe I didn't explain it properly. It, it's not like a process of storing. Your historian, where you want to store and, and historize data, that historian becomes a node within the unified namespace. What the unified namespace is doing is it's providing the exchange of that information. So, if I'm a PLC and I change state on the factory floor, I publish that to the unified namespace. That change, report by exception, and then any node or system that is now subscribing to that PLC, say it's my historian, it now gets a report of that data. And then it, it now logs that, hey, there was a change timestamp to when that event occurred. But there really isn't any data per se that's stored inside the UNS other than, mm. um, you know, let's get into the weeds a little bit if you're using uh, you know, Q QOS2 which means that I'm going to make sure that this data gets there and I'm using a retain flag, meaning that value will stay there. Anytime something comes online and it's now subscribing to that topic namespace, it's now going to get that update, but that's really the only thing that's there. There's no other information. 
Understood. So if, if, if nothing is subscribing to it, I send it. It's like the, the, the tree in the forest fell. No one was there to hear it. So, you know, that, that's the end of that. So that's the big difference between a unified namespace and a data lake. So could, with the right structure and setup, could a data lake be become a unified namespace? Like if you have that structure, like I'm picturing a unified namespace, I have these, these folders and it's very logically set up um, mm -hmm. to be able to access that information. So could you have a data lake become a unified namespace? The way the data lakes are currently being used, uh, I'm, my answer is no. And the reason why it's because data lakes now become this repository of all of this unstructured, undefined um, data that's there. I've now taken all of these, these edge, you know, all this edge data, and I've just thrown it up into this data lake, and then I'm going to process it or do something with it later. Um, so what people will try to do is create this you know, quote unquote unified namespace or put some context around the, all of this data that's been put there. But what you lose in that process is that you, you lose the raw data because an event occurred and there's a timestamp and I can put it into a, a data lake. But once I start modifying and manipulating that data and try to put it in context, I've now lost the underlying data um, values, the raw data. And I've also, um, I don't necessarily have the the uh, the uh, um, the way that that the calculations that were used to make that. So what I'll recommend people to do if you want to model it, you do your modeling at the edge and then put that complete model up into that data lake, which is where you can do some more analysis on it. So again, structure it, define it before it gets to the data lake. So oh, you know, okay. for instance, yeah. So from an for instance from a from this unified namespace, I can use, say, uh, you mentioned uh, Azure earlier, I can use an IoT hub, I can use stream analytics, and then I can bring it into Power BI and I can do my analysis. But everything I'm looking at at that point has already been contextualized and conditioned and modeled before I even get it. Gotcha. I'm not doing it that in the cloud. Understood, okay, understood. And I think the the premises is is the this concept of the the, the data in context, the information is available to um, from any node to any node. Yes, it's right. Yes. So, so all all nodes publish, all nodes subscribe, and right. the, however you are architected your system, the node every node has the information it needs at the time it needs it. Isn't the, isn't that amazing? Right. So mm -hmm. the this this idea of of publish and subscribe or pub subscribe as, as most people call it, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It's been around. I, I would think that, you know, maybe a foundation field bus back in the day was some sort of that pub subscribe um, architecture that they were looking at. Um, but when you start to look at industry 4.0, pub subscribe, you're going to get to, um, I'm going to call it a protocol. I don't know if it's the right word is a MQTT. Um, so, yeah, for me, I use the MQTT protocol um, as that that pub sub methodology, and then I will because I'm in the uh, automation or within manufacturing, um, I will use the Spark Plug B payload mm -hmm. or the the um, you know the protocol for it, and it's only because I get a defined. Um, I, I know exactly what the the uh, the payload is going to look like. Um, that's already been structured. There's you know all of the um, there's birth certificates, death certificates, those types of things. It becomes stateful. And there's also some compression uh, in there as well. See, with just a flat MQTT, I can publish in any way I want and subscribe in any way I want. This just provides some, some definition around exactly how you want to get that data um, there. Right. So before we get so, into that, so mm -hmm. MQTT, it's, it's, a, it's a protocol that allows us to, you know, send, I think, what do you call these, these packets or, or these... Um, mm -hmm. bits of information um, in a streamlined or, or uh, compressed or, or, or I guess lightweight um, way of sending this, this information around. Yeah, so MQTT is not new. Um, it was developed in the late 90s. Um, Cirrus Link, Arlen Nipper, uh, guys from uh, IBM 
Um, his name escapes me now. And then, of course, you know, Phillips 66, they were the ones who wanted it. And they had to get all this data out of these remote uh, oil fields. Mm. And they needed a way to do that in a way that was, you know, again, lightweight report by exception. So that's that's where this uh, MQTT protocol was developed. Interesting. Okay. And that makes a lot of sense from these oil wells in the middle of nowhere and mm-hmm. things like that, right? So, and and then the the spark plug, spark plug, as you, as you enabled it, it really gives a... Um, a, a, a definition, if you will, to the data that's being sent. So you can know what's going out and how to, I don't know what the right word is, map it once it comes comes back in from a from a node. So you know exactly what that framework of that data looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're, you're going to have your, um, there, there's a device ID, there's your node ID, there's your, um, oh, now I'm embarrassed. I'm at a loss for the last, the third one that's there. No, you don't even be embarrassed at all because yeah, you've already, yeah. you, you've already it's, it's, just trumped my knowledge here by a hundred <laughs> times over. So there's, there's no embarrassment. I can ask you the same questions over and over again until it sticks in my head, but no. So, okay. So I'm starting to see this. So I'm starting to see, you know, these, these, these nodes. So a node is going to be, um, so let's work up an example here. A node's going to be a PLC system, right? Uh, which could be a, a, a individual PLC or a bunch of network PLCs together, right? Yeah, um, it can be, sure. It, it's going to connect to a unified namespace. So when there's a report by exception, so I'm assuming you can put whatever, how much an exception you need to be able to report that change. Yes. Uh, um, so, you know, I'm gonna make this up and I don't know, I don't have a real use case, but maybe you do, but you know, my flow changed by by X amount or this event happened. So it went from a binary zero to a one, put that into the unified namespace and then any other node that is subscribed to that specific information will say, oh, hey, this changed, right? And be able to subscribe to that and get that information and make changes or whatever Mm -hmm. based on that information. Yeah, there's information that needs to be known. It's now been published out. And as since I'm as a subscriber, I do what it is that I'm going to do with it. I mentioned the historian earlier. The historian now takes that data and then historizes it and writes that value. So you have your your timestamp, you have your value and you have your quality right then and there. Okay, quality of the, the quality of the, the data. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, TBQ is how what you know most people know as a as a historian data. Those are the three things you want. Okay, understood. And then, so let's take a step back and go back to you know ten years ago. Um, you know, and we're all in Industry three um, How how so a, traditionally a PLC would have. Re- would have wrote that change in that, you know, flow to a historian through a one-to-one connection through a single protocol, right? Uh, yeah, typically it, it's an OPC connection. Um, depending on the architecture, sometimes it'll go to a a, um, a SCADA system first and then the historian. But right. older systems, yeah, they they absolutely would have been there. There's your SCADA connection, and now there's your historian connection, and it's right. capturing that that rising edge from that PLC. So if, if all we wanted to do was just to get that information into a historian, then that one-to-one relationship would have been fine. And we would have had success mm-hmm. in that, right? Where the, really the, what's happening in industry 4.0 and, and being fueled by this unified namespace, if that information had to get for a decision or action to be made by the top level of an ERP system or other nodes, that's where it's really starting to see the benefits of this because any other node or, or system that could benefit from knowing that can get that from one, uh, what you, what you called, I think was what the one uh, truth, right? Yeah. Yeah. One, one version of the truth that that's not an, uh, an uncommon, even in industry 3.0 um, that's there, but it now becomes this system to where every, all of my current data is available in real time from every system. Right. And you start to yeah, imagine so- the, insights and decisions you can make when everything is available for you because if you were to go right now to most companies and say hey i want to get the work order history from the erp system or cms system okay i'll send it to an export like there's just right and and then i want to get the trend of the temperature then i have to go to my process historian right and you start combining all these data together so it's that that um centralized repository of of the data in Mm -hmm. in context that anyone can can subscribe to 
so this this change, right? And and uh, I'm you know I'm, I'm picturing a, a, a you know as you mentioned, the ISA 95, the traditional way of doing a network architecture has that pyramid starting at the bottom from your sensors and all the way at the top of the pyramid going into your enterprise um, system, like an SAP or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Now we're switching over to this unified namespace. So I'm picturing, you know, this unified namespace in the middle, picture circle in the middle and all these nodes with PLCs, DCSs, historians, CMMS systems coming into that unified namespace. Yeah, you, right. you've, you've perfectly described what the visualization I use for that. It's the transformation from the pyramid to this unified namespace in the middle with every node sitting around it. You nailed it. So the, the big challenge and the reason ISA 95 was put in place was, well, there's, there's a lot of reasons, but a lot has to do with the security. So in fact, you know, automation people typically don't, they'll blow on that last few layers of the bottom edge of the pyramid, but up there it gets into the IT world, right? And this is really what we've been talking about is the ITOT conversion. Because once you start having this centralized repository of data, you have these nodes where information is accessible. What about security? Security has got to be a concern from that point. Like what if there's a node that goes wonky? Can they edit that data? Can they screw things up? Can they take down your whole centralized repository of data? Yeah, security is, is one of the main fundamentals of why I like MQTT, because it only uses an outbound port for communication. Now, obviously the broker is, it has to have that inbound port open, so that you, that's going to exist. But any other node that connects to it is, it uses an outbound port, so you don't have to open anything up. Um, in terms of data going wonky, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what that scenario would look like, but certainly if, there's, if there is a problem, I mean, typically we'll use uh, a TLS, we'll use an SSL connection um, between those two and there's the authentication and um, you're, you're uh, uh, scrambling the data um, so you can get to it, securing that data. Um, but as far as something goes wonky, other systems are certainly going to recognize that say something's going on here, this isn't right. Yeah, that's that was my technical term, wonky. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I <laughs> right. use it as well. <laughs> um, okay, so you know, so I'm processing all this in my head, and so we have these nodes going to this um, unified namespace, and we, you know, we'll have this this um, publish describe uh, protocol. Which, which it seems to be MQTT when I, when I start looking at automation systems and I'll use you know, inductive automation and Opto 22 mm -hmm. and those people like it's just, you know, MQTT ready and the protocols built in and, and their, their foresight into where the industry is going, I think is why they're doing this, right? Because in my opinion, if you just say, hey, to an automation person that might not be up to speed, say this as MQTT and that's great, I'm just gonna use Modbus and bring this information out and get it to where I need to go, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, and there's still people that like using Modbus. And, you know, again, it's when I talk about technology, it's got to be the right technology. It has to be supportable in, by the people that are there. But, you know, I mentioned the name Arlen Nipper earlier. The reason why I can is because he worked with inductive automation to develop what is now this, the uh, spark plug uh, protocol. Um, so Ignition has been innovative, saw, wow, this is powerful. This is transformative to what it is we're trying to do. And uh, from the, the story that I heard is within a week, Sparkplug B was, well, was A at the time, um, was now ready to go. And, um, you know, I talked earlier about being collaborative. Opto 22 is much the same way. They're, how can we continue to develop the relationship we have within this market? Opto 22 has always been a very forward thinking in, in the way that they've gone to market. So now you start seeing these um, these relationships that are just coming around, wow, we have to support this spark plug B because it is going to be so part and parcel to digital transformation within automation and manufacturing. And there's, there's a number of companies that are now doing it. Um, All right. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, you still have some of the, the, the leaders in the industry 3.0 that have not jumped on the spark plug bandwagon. And it's yeah. interesting. But is it is it going to be like a beta VC? I'm dating myself here, but a beta VCR debate. Like, is there going to be uh, instead of a spark plug, there'll be some other kind of plug where it 
I, I, I don't know what that would be. I mean, whether it's yeah. HD, DVD, and Blu-ray, or whether yeah, it's he's... beta, VHS, th there really isn't a competing per se. I mean, you do have DNP3, which, are, which really is more around power. And you could certainly use that for your unified namespace because it meets all the criteria. Um, AMQP, I think, is, is what it is. I don't see it as much. That's a, a Microsoft, again, has all of those things. But fundamentally, you're seeing Sparkplug be at the automation level. And there's many more companies that are doing it. Understood. They're okay. using it. Mm -hmm. So I guess, you know, we mentioned this. So, you know, we're talking about unified namespace. And then I'm also throwing in some confusion. So if someone's listening to this conversation and doesn't have, you know, the, the fundamental knowledge, they're going, I don't know what the hell these people are saying. Because when you think about it, you know, I, I do this analogy of this pyramid and then going to this um, unified namespace that has a circle in the middle and all these nodes. But then if you start to look at MQTT, this, this protocol, and then with Sparkplug on top of it, which essentially gives um, a framework or structure to how that data mm -hmm. is being sent, is if you look at the MQTT method, you have these devices and you have a broker. So you have these devices and you have this broker, which is subscribing to these devices as well. So it's, it can be confusing, I think, to understand how these pieces fit together. So what is that, you know, device and, and uh, or client and broker model at the MQTT protocol level? Within the, that, you will have an MQTT broker. So you can think of that as a server and then anything that is connected to it or the node, that is now an MQTT client. So the uh, all of your devices that support MQTT and the Sparkplug B protocol will then connect into that broker and that's where that, that data exchange takes place. Um, so for instance, you, you mentioned Opto22, their uh, Epic, their Groove Epic and mm -hmm. Rio both support Sparkplug B. I can now, any change that exists within that, whether it's a, a tag change or in the case of the Epic, it, it has these, um, it'll have a strategy running. Anytime there's an update, a report by exception, that'll then get published to that unified namespace. I can then use a historian. The one that I prefer is Canary Labs. Uh, my Canary historian has an MQTT uh, Sparkplug B connector so that anytime my Opto22 publishes to it, I now historize that data in my Canary historian and I can then go back and view any of those changes and start doing some of that analysis. Um, and the reason why I like Canary is that I can also build in models and publish right back to that mm. MQTT broker um, and then utilize that, that information however I see fit. And then of course I can also um, visualize based on that. I can create dashboards and those types of things utilizing that same piece of data. Interesting. Um, one, yeah. yeah, I want to be very clear though, make sure that you're doing, even though I can do control with Sparkplug B, you still really want to use that direct connection between your SCADA system and your, um, and your PLC. Uh, again, OPC, OPC UA, those would be my preferred method for actually yeah, okay. doing that control. Yeah. Oh, okay. So for, for, for closed loop control, you still recommend those one-to-one -one dedicated connections. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. again, this is, this is an opinion. Um, yep. There are plenty of course. people that'll, that'll you yep. know, say, well, you know, it'll do it. Yeah, it will. I could do I could do a safety instrumented system using wireless, but I don't know if that'd really be a smart move. Um, for me, MQTT is, it's really about getting information passed around. It's not necessarily for control, even though it will do it back and forth. I can turn um, okay. a, 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 you know, I can open and close a, a valve um, you know, start and stop a motor with MQTT. I, I can, I have demos that I've shown it, but right. I would still absolutely have the control. Um, there's another PLC that, um, you know, I, I would connect through a Kepware for its control and I would also publish directly out of it. Um, same thing I would do with OP or with that Opto22 as well. Okay, so going back to the MQT, MQTT broker, Right, so we have these these uh, devices which are are generating data, so sensors and, and gateways and things like that. That broker. So when we look at the unified namespace, we have the the nodes and then the unified namespace. Is the MQTT broker, which you mentioned, is on a server? Is that become a node? That would no, it is. It, it's yeah, it's the central part of it. You know, so I use MQTT to build that unified namespace. Again, it's where I'm putting in that data. So it's always going to have the most up-to-date data. Anything that is that that is a, a a data that you need to know comes through that broker, and it comes through in a in a hierarchy 
um, you know, again, that's that unified namespace um, that, so I always use the ISA 95, this is where it comes in because I always start at enterprise site, area, mm -hmm. line, cell, and that's how I build that unified namespace. So if I'm a PLC that sits on a particular line, the topic namespace that comes out of that, of course, is gonna follow that, that same ISA 95 uh, structure hierarchy. And that's part of that, that's that structure that you build into the unified namespace. But that MQTT broker, the server, that is acting as that centralized uh, hub, if you will, for all the data to come through, to, to publish and consume. Understood. Okay, now, one of the one of the issues, and, and anyone in automation or dealt with a PLC, specifically mapping of, of registers going back to, you know, Modbus and things like that, or OPC, right? And, and the reason we say, oh, please communicate, because once you have it right, it, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's robust, right? You're like, oh, thank God, I'm getting mm -hmm. data. Um, if something was to go wrong, you mentioned changing a tag name. Like if you if you map one too many registers in a Modbus, like you, you get nothing back. It's not like you only get the one that you didn't map right back. It just takes everything else out. So everything becomes zero, right? So that's why anyone that's done it, we all know typically you start just mapping one register over, making sure you okay, right? And you do it very methodically like that. And then eventually with it, you know, you add another one and it trumps everything out. You're like, okay. We're going to reverse engineer this. Um, so the idea, I'm hoping what's happening with this is that, you know, if you make a change at one end, it's reflective of all the other ends. You don't have to go back and mm -hmm. change that at literally tens, if not hundreds of different locations. Is that is that yeah, true? It's very true. That's, that's the part of being edge-driven, that if I go in and change the name of my tag, the broker doesn't care. You're just now publishing the new tag. On the flip side, you want to make sure that your that tag change is also anything that's subscribing to it. You want to make sure that it's aware of it. So if you just change the name of the tag, but it still sits at the exact same layer of that hierarchy, then you're going to be fine that, you know, again, that historian is going to pick up that change. It's still going to have the old name of the tag is still going to be in there. And now it's going to start historizing this new tag because, again, it, it doesn't it's not concerned with what the name of it is. It just knows that it's subscribing to that, that level. Now, if you do make a change to where it puts it at a different level within that unified namespace, so say I was at the cell level and now I take it to the line level, if you're only subscribing to the cell level, you're not going to see it at the line level. So okay. that's the only caveat to doing that, but you can call it anything you want. Um, and, and the beauty is, is that once you start publishing all these, so again, coming from the PLC, you know, say I have 100 tags sitting in there, I don't have to map those to the broker. I just say, publish these to the broker and all 100 show up. And anything that's consuming mm -hmm. at that level is now consuming that data as well. So again, I could just start publishing 100 tags from a brand new PLC that I just um, set up on my system, publish it to it. And if my historian is subscribing to that level within there, it automatically starts historizing those tags. I did nothing. Gotcha. Okay, now, so one last question before we, we wrap up here is, is you know, people listening to that are going to, they're, they're probably a little confused because we, we got in the weeds here about specific protocols and things like that. Mm -hmm. But yes. at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's something that people need to start considering as they move to Industry 4.0. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and saying you're not recommending that you, everyone just tear down their ISA 95 architecture and in one fair swoop, move everything over into a unitized namespace that has an open architecture driven by the edge, report by extensions, lightweight. I, I, I'm only assuming, I'm not speaking for you, that that's you know kind of your method of what you do as a service is, is you know put the processes in place as you're as you're going down this industry four journey, as you're strapping things to things and bringing in data and trying to do AI and machine learning, that you're recommending putting that foundation in. So is that true? And how would you recommend people start to think? and work towards moving from a traditional um, ITOT infrastructure and a pyramid to this unified namespace or industry 4.0 architecture. Yeah, so that there's nothing here that you're going to want to replace what's already there. And digital transformation is not a project, it's a strategy. So you first want to develop that strategy. What are we trying to do? And it's, it's something as simple as what's the data that we are trying to capture so the value of it or how you know what is it how are we going to use it and then once we have it how is that going to change the business that's the fundamental first step of get that strategy aligned and then every project that you do after that 
will then reflect whatever it is that this particular strategy is. So again, it's just understanding what are we trying to do. And that's when you start collecting, you know, what's what sort of quote unquote intelligence do we have sitting at the factory floor? What data is available to us? And then, then we want to get that all connected. So there's, there's no rip and replace where you have to um, you know, put in this whole new thing. You take it what's there and it's, it's another uh, you know, project or something that I demonstrated and put together was this is how you take a lot of this legacy equipment and get it into an industry 4.0 architecture. Um, so you'll typically use like a gateway to do it, but you keep what's there. If there's already intelligence, quote unquote, that's, that's already there, you just get it brought into this unified namespace. Um, you don't necessarily have to replace everything. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. And and just just quickly here, because we were talking about it before we started this podcast, is you know is AI ML this 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 intelligence or analytic layers is obviously um, really really at the top of the well, actually it's heading down the 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 bottom now of the the hype curve where we start to see successes and things like that. But yet, as you pointed out, we get into this pilot purgatory right, of, mm-hmm. of these ones not being able to scale. So looking at it from a, you know, a, a, you know, what I'll call predictive maintenance from an analytical point of view, um, how would you recommend people go about that? Would it be before you even start to look at, you know, doing AI, even offline, would you start to say, first, you need to get your, your, your data in a position where it's industry 4.0 ready, where it's in a unified namespace where you have, um, you know, the open architecture of the edge report by exception, lightweight, even though like that open architecture, it's a, it's a very specific use case. You, you might not need it, but to scale it, you might. So I'm just trying to figure out how you'd recommend people go about this process. If their end goal is, Hey, I want to do machine learning to predict something or a vector in the future. How would this unified namespace, this industry for the architecture play in that project? Yeah, it, it, a great question. So I'm going to start by saying many people have have gone down the path of somehow industry 4.0 is getting everything in the cloud, and then I'm going to do all this AI ML, and somehow magically I'm going to be able to get all this data out of it. Um, I you know I'm, I like watching South Park. Nobody should, but there was this episode that was called the Underpants Gnomes, and the idea was that we're going to steal underpants and we're going to make profit, and industry 4.0 efforts have seemed to go along that same path or we're gonna put everything in a cloud and do this machine learning and we're gonna make profit. There's gonna be this magic data that is revealed out of it. And it's it, nothing could be further from the truth. You have the pilot purgatory because that's what people have gone down the path of. That's the thing that we want. But those your AIML systems are now nodes of that unified namespace. And so if this, the steps to digital transformation the first thing you want to do is create this unified namespace. And then from that learning, you then decide, okay, what are we going to do next? Your machine learning and your AI are way down the path of your digital transformation. And I say that because there's so much data that you can utilize now today that you don't have access to. Get that data first, make those operational improvements, just sitting at your, at your cell level, at your line level, at your area level first, and then once you understand what every, all that's happening there, then you can start adding on these AI ML nodes. But until you're able to get all of your data in this common format where everything is available in real time, that AI ML is not gonna do you a bit of good because you're dealing with, with data that's missing, data that's not good quality. Uh, and, and it's just, it's the classic garbage in, garbage out. Whether you're trying to do predictive uh, maintenance on, on an asset or you're just trying to optimized throughput on a line constraining quality. It's so fundamental to success within your uh, digital transformation journey. Good. Well, that's great, David. I appreciate it. And this, this helped me out a lot. I am a visual learner, so I drew a lot of pictures, which I'll, I'll, it'll be funny to actually post them um, when we release this podcast just so people see my, <laughs> my great uh, artwork skill of, of triangles and, and circles with nodes and MQTT. And, and I imagine for, for the listeners out there, don't feel you have to know that like this is, this is new. And again, I, I prided myself of, of being in this space and, and David, I learned so much just from this conversation and the previous conversations we have. And I, I very much look forward to the content you're going to be 
put you putting out there, David, in in, in in simply in maintenance and reliability, uh, bridging that gap for us from the from the data mm-hmm. point of view and, and these conferences coming up and things like that. So I, yeah, I, 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 we're going to have a lot of questions, I'm assuming, from our, our listeners. So uh, so where, where could our listeners, um, <laughs> I want to offer it up, but uh, you can, um, to get in for more information, pick your brain um, and, and things like that. How would they get in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, it's, it's David Schultz. Uh, it's, I, I think my, if you were to go into LinkedIn and find it, it's actually under the David Schultz, because that's originally how I started branding myself when I got yeah. into reliability. Um, the company is G5 Consulting. The website is G5, uh, the number five, CES.com. Um, you can take a look there. And then I also do have a YouTube channel under G5 Consulting, and you can actually see some videos I've created that talk about this unified namespace, how I do asset modeling, um, you know, some of this MQTT and Sparkplug B, you can take a look at those things as well uh, and continue to develop those. Oh, fantastic. But, Good. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, so I, you know, frankly, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I would say, so I, I got into the reliability space about 12 years ago, only because I saw that as an assured strategy for American manufacturing to compete. And to me, that's when people say, oh, I don't know if there's too much opportunity in M&R for modeling. To me, it's that's where you should be focusing your time because it's that return on asset, it's that asset health, those are gonna be the things that are going to drive our competitive advantage in a global economy. Perfect, I think that's brilliant. And you're gonna see uh, those view counts on those videos uh, start to pop up here when we release this podcast. Um, so, so thank you very much, Dave, for coming on the show. I, I, we, we might've um, you know, left our audience with, with more questions than they came in with because they didn't know what a unified namespace was or MQTT and things like that. So what I'd ask, David, if you're interested, we could probably do a podcast just on each section of, of that data pipeline. Okay, I have a device and I have mm-hmm. this and I want to get to here, you know, and, and yeah. we can maybe mm-hmm. even just work it through a, you may even have a video on it on a typical application and, and what that looks like. But we'll save that for another day. We got to keep these podcasts going. So I do appreciate <laughs> uh, David having you on. It was a fantastic conversation. I really do uh, look forward to some of the other material you're going to put out this specifically in the maintenance and reliability space. Yeah, no, it's, it's thank, thank you again for inviting me. I truly enjoyed it. Great. Thank you.